Welcome to the Access VFX podcast, pursuing inclusion, diversity, awareness, and opportunity in VFX, animation, and games industries. Hi, I'm Simon Devereaux, founder and director of Access VFX, bringing the visual effects, animation, and games industry together, working towards a shared goal to make our industry more diverse and inclusive by taking action rather than just talking about it. Okay, right, welcome. Oh, I've got to do my podcast voice that uh, Roshni was telling me is really good. Yeah, right. So welcome to another Access VFX podcast. My first question to this lovely audience that we've got assembled is who is an active subscriber to the pod? Oh, God, is that it? Thank you, Rosh. Thank you, Tyler. Right, that's, no, so you all got to, you, you get to listen to this on Friday. Is that really only two people subscribe to the Access VFX? Oh, thank you. Okay, all right, yeah, you can lie if you want. Okay, right. Um, I'm going to do a quick intro. Is my tone of voice okay, Tom? That's producer Tom at the back, by the way, from Blue Zoo Animation. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's a special live episode um, all the way from the mill in London Fitzrovia. Fancy London Fitzrovia, so make some noise. And um, for a change, based on feedback that we've got through a number of our events, we wanted to have a conversation that isn't too visual effects heavy. A lot of people want to hear stories, want to get stuck into a conversation around broader creative industry, and not just visual effects animation and games. So I thought, or we thought, we'd assemble some industry, creative industry thought leaders. I thought you guys are thought leaders. Are you okay with that title? Yeah, is that okay? Go with it, we'll go with thought leaders. And one of the kind of uh, ambitions for this episode was to talk about intersectionality. Because we've done, I mean, I can see Noreen Connolly over there who has been on many a visual effects panel. Um, but we wanted to do something that was more intersectional and not just visual effects because visual effects would just be a lot of white women. And I've got nothing against white women. I'm getting cotton mouth over here. Can somebody bring me a glass of water? <laughs> I've always wanted to say that. Can we have two glasses of water, please? Or maybe a beer halfway through. Um, yeah, so we want to talk about intersectionality, and we're going to break that down. But I wanted to do introductions first. And firstly, I wanted to introduce my co-chair. First time we've ever had a co-chair in Nene. So Nene, I'm going to let you introduce yourself with our shared microphone. No worries. Co-chair, shared microphone. Hi, everyone. My name is Nene Parsotem, and I am one of the co-founders of We Are Stripes, which is an initiative to help more BAME uh, individuals into the creative uh, industry starting with advertising because that is my background. I'm an art director. Uh, and I'm also one of the non-executive board members for Access VFX. Yes, you can cheer that if you want. <laughs> Do you even know what it means? Yeah. <laughs> cheer it anyway. Okay, let's pass the microphone down. So over to you, Jane. Hi, my name's Jane Evans. I run a thing called the Uninvisibility Project, um, which is basically to stop women um, falling off the career cliff Basically, around about the age of 45 it starts, around about 50. It usually takes about three years of working out that you don't have a career anymore. Um, then you try and start something up on, you know, when your life savings have ended. Um, and so we're here to sort of spread the word that we should be having more wisdom and we should be employing more experienced women. Hello everyone, I'm Roshni Goyate, I'm one of the co-founders of The Other Box, which is an award-winning company for increasing diversity within the creative and tech industries. Um, should I say about where we started? <laughs> so my, I met my co-founder, Leah, here at The Mill in 2016 at an, uh, yeah, but hold on. <laughs> it was at an inclusion event. Inclusion Week event, which was a great event, um, but there were no women of colour on the panel. And Leah and myself, as women of colour um, from working class backgrounds and various other intersections of our identity, we felt were being left out of the, the I mean, the inclusion conversation as a whole. I'd been to so many panels by that point. So we decided to start the other box then. And here we are, nearly four years later. <laughs> full circle and Simon has been an amazing support throughout so it's cool it's it has come full circle genuinely so that's a microphone over there big round of applause for Rosh hello I'm s oh hello <laughs> <laughs> hello I'm Steph Matthews I'm the partnerships director at creative equals um, that's a, a global not-for-profit that supports inclusion in the creative sector um, I have been there five months now so I'm, I'm quite new but I've known Ali the founder uh, for quite a while um, and prior to this I've worked in advertising research for um, ITV and Channel 4 
and client-side marketing for the RAC and Virgin. And I'm absolutely loving a career in diversity and inclusion. It really kind of um, motivates me and, and, and gives me real joy. Last but not least. Um, hi, my name is Samantha Rank. Um, I am a actress, broadcaster, journalist and disability campaigner. Um, I, I've been in London for about eight years and I used to be a high school teacher and then all of a sudden I was like, hey, up, I'll, uh, I'll, give, uh, I'll give acting a whirl. And um, I soon found out that being a woman and a woman with a disability, uh, no one really wanted to employ me as an actress. And I thought, how am I going to change this? Not only for me, because I live in Shoreditch and that's expensive. Um, <laughs> you know, so I started campaigning and that's taken over my life in a very positive way um, but I've realised that I'm not the only uh, person with a disability that wants to um, crack the creative world um, and want our voices to be heard so that's kind of my uh, mission statement at the moment but I, I, I'm, I'm known for not um, mixing my words um, recently on Loose Women talking about my vagina so that was fun um, so you've got a lot to uh, expect this afternoon <laughs> Yeah, we should mention that this is live streaming, so if anybody, uh, we did say if anybody gets offended easily. a big reveal. Yeah, maybe tune out. So we've got, we've got a bunch of questions, and Nene's going to lead the first one, but uh, this is for everybody to get stuck into, and as much as this feels like a, a panel event, and we're here at the mill, and there's benches and lovely people sitting on sofas, and we all look very attentive, it is a conversation. I want it to feel nice and relaxed and informal, so as much as you might feel some questions are specifically, if I speak specifically about disability, it's not just for Samantha, for example, everybody should get stuck in. And all of you guys, I want questions. This is your opportunity to be immortalised on a podcast that will live forever. And ever and ever. All right, so keep it cleanish. All right, I'm going to hand over to Nanny. No worries, no worries. All right, so let's get started. I think for the benefit of the audience and for everyone here, I'm not going to assume that everyone knows what intersectionality is. So I think it's best to start off with defining that. So for everyone on the uh, panel, Stroke Podcast, would you have to tell me what you think um, intersectionality, <laughs> intersectionality is and why you think it's important? Jane, go. We need as many voices and as many stories as we possibly can be out there. I think, you know, we've had thousands of years of the patriarchy and, and you know, being um, men dominating. Um, I think it's time that we actually start really hearing the voices of the more marginalised um, and also the not so marginalised. It's like, you know, there's lots of massive groups that are really not being heard. Um, luckily, I just wrote a master's thesis on this. <laughs> So intersectionality is uh, it started in the world of academia. It's a concept that was coined by Kimberly Crenshaw in the 80s, who's an African-American um, female activist and a legal professor. And she coined this term because she found that institutionally, like, um, certain identities were being erased. Um, and the work specifically that she found is that black women were dealing with the intersections of oppression as women and from an ethnicity point of view. Um, so intersectionality as a framework allows us to become um, more aware and it brings visibility to identities that are essentially rendered invisible by structures and by institutions. And so the way we talk about it as the other box is that um, we kind of have this diagram and it talks about gender, race, ethnicity, um, age, disability, immigration status, parental or carer status. Within all of these, there are powers, power imbalances and intersectionality allows you to see what those imbalances are and what identities are being erased. Nice. Carry on, you can take it. Oh. Um, that's interesting, actually, what you both said, and I'm going to build on that. It's not a prescripted question, but when we talk about creative industry, and you, you mentioned stories, unheard stories, I mean, everything we do is storytelling, narrative, different perspectives. I bang on about this all the time. But, I mean, I mean anyone want to comment on that? Is that, is that as much a part of uh, intersectionality and diversity as it is about ensuring that we represent society and, and ensure that our, our companies and studios are, are well represented as well? Does anybody want to take that? It's a question in there somewhere. It's more about comment rather than question. I think there's a question about um, people have different lived experiences. So if I think about myself, um, I'm brown, so I'm mixed race. My mum is from British Guiana, Indian, and my dad is from Essex. 
big up Essex. <laughs> but I, so I'm mixed race, I'm one of the fastest growing demographics in the UK. I'm also gay, so that kind of has a filter on how I view the world. Um, and I'm also a woman, so I have, you know, as Jane alludes to, I have the patriarchy to um, contend with. And that just means that the way I view the world, the way my perspective on that, it, I bring different ways of thinking and I bring different perspectives. And anyone that I'm working with or anyone that um, uh, has to manage me really does have to be aware of that because that, that will change the way, that changes the way that you do business. I think, um, I mean, coming back to intersectionality and, and looking at, you know, your different facets, because we're all multifaceted. As a disabled woman, I was never allowed to recognise that I have any other identity other than being disabled. And because my struggles as a disabled woman, um, which are put on me by society, not derived from my, my impairment, so to speak, but kind of prejudice and discrimination, I, I'm never really allowed to um, kind of look at myself just as a woman my disability always comes at the forefront and i think you know when i am a campaigner you know me looking at women's rights doesn't even come into my mind because there's so much work to be done to ensure that my disability um and the rights as a disabled person um are met first which i think is kind of really quite sad um there's so much that needs to be done um, you know, I mean, even just things like I need to think about every time I go out, is there going to be a, a, a bathroom that I can use? You know, that these are the things that plight my 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 mind. Never mind, am I going to be uh, you know kind of seen differently, treated differently because I'm a woman? That's like the least of my concerns. So I think that's really you know we really need to look at how we move disability on and, and kind of really protect the almost 14 million disabled people in the UK. That's one in five people have a disability and we are the fastest growing minority. So I think um, this is why it's quite great to be sat here today and, and, and talking about you know disability awareness because we really need to get moving, get, uh, get, get, I don't know, we need more allies and we need to uh, think more about disability in, in every walk of life. That was a ramble, wasn't it? <laughs> About, um, we talk about having an inclusive lens. So you're talking about the, the toilets there. It's like just thinking about inclusion from anything, the way that you get your briefs in, the way that you um, approach your work, the way that you design your buildings. It's um, Once you have that lens, then you can really be more open and inclusive to everyone. On that, um, I wanted to stay on disability for a bit because, uh, Sam, we had a chat beforehand about um, it being a big focus for Access VFX and the work we're doing. I can speak frankly that there's a huge lack of disabled creatives at the mill where we are right now and, and huge underrepresentation across, I think, wider creative industry, not just visual effects, animation and games. I'm looking to Tom just to make sure I've got that right because he gets around. Not like uh, events, <laughs> not anything dodgy like that. Um, yeah. <laughs> But um, how can uh, I mean, any business, but creative business, ensure we're creating an inclusive and welcoming environment for people with impairments, disabilities, and ensuring that they progress in their careers? I mean, what's, what are we doing? I mean, I've got some examples of stuff I've tried or we've tried, but what are we missing? I think we need to go back to the basics and understand what life is like to have an impairment. Um, I'll give you an example. So I work in television. Um, I am very independent in a lot of respects, but because I need to think uh, wherever I'm going, you know, is it going to be accessible? Have people thought about my needs? I mean, the amount of auditions I've gone on and I've said, it's definitely accessible. They go, yeah, just one step. Well, that's all right. Um, so, so you know, I actually employ someone. I've got a personal assistant. Um, I only have her for 15 hours a week. And um, so I have to constantly, you know, think right I've got her so I've got to be here so I'm you know I've got to use them two hours because I only have two hours with that uh, on that day and then I get a call from television or whoever it is and they're like oh we're gonna do it next week now and that might leave me without care for a couple of days so I think it's a, just understanding um, what it's like to live with an impairment, you know, understand austerity, understand that, you know, the government is taking thousands and thousands of um, hours of care for people. So I think just the, the basics, you know, offer things like, um, you know, zero hour contracts. Um, when I can't go to an audition, you know, instead of me missing out on that audition, all you need to say is self-tape, you know, um, it's so simple. 
um, and recognise that. And it's about communication. We still feel very awkward around disability. Um, but when you stop that line of communication, that's when people become ostracised and alienated. So, you know, I think people need to realise that we are just humans um, and we might have additional needs, but, um, you know, ask us what them additional needs are and we'll explain and then we can work differently. I mean, it's it's ironic that a lot of a lot of um, new startups, you know, they, they do things like working remotely and really kind of uh, in, uh, innovations. And it's like, this, this is what disabled people would need, but actually it's just kind of cool to work remotely or to Skype in. But all the all this is like what disabled people have been wanting and been asking for for years. It's, you know, it's looking at things like using, you know, like Alexas and things like that. You know, um, people who had learning disabilities had that kind of technology, but it wasn't on the market, but, or they wasn't easily accessible because there was a small, a small amount or quote unquote, a small amount of people wanting that technology. And then all of a sudden the masses wanted it. So everyone's gotten an Alexa. But um, so it's, you know, it's looking at uh, speaking to disabled people and getting to the essence of what daily life is like and, and um, not being so static, uh, being a bit more flexible. But I think that's what we are. We are becoming more now, you know, which is fantastic. Um, but yeah, yeah, I think communication's key. Awesome. That's awesome. I just want to pick up on that almost the semi-last point, um, Sam, um, about communication and then asking the community. Um, I was speaking to um, one of our friends uh, during this week and we were talking about creative work that is for disabled people that has been done by uh, disabled people. An example is uh, the really cool, I don't know if you saw it, the really cool uh, Microsoft um, Xbox controller, which they did for, which is just an amazing piece of work I saw last year at Cannes. So just on that, because you're an actress and obviously in the creative industry, would you be able to give an example of a really strong piece of work that's been done for the, um, for the disabled community by them? I think it's hard to actually pinpoint one um, piece of work. I would say what stands out to me is Netflix have really, really raised the bar with regards to, I think, diversity across the board. And it might only be very subliminal. Like, you know, you might get someone in a wheelchair in the in the background and they might not be the the main character but their presence is there and, and a non-disabled person would probably not even notice that but for someone who's a wheelchair user I'm screaming at the telly going oh my god look there's a wheelchair user you know so I think Netflix have really raised that bar um with regards to kind of having authentic representation um and also um Disabled people come in all different shapes and sizes, so that needs to be represented. I think um, we are still, we we still pigeon cherry pick. Sorry, uh, what disability looks like, and you need to be a certain. You, you either I've been told I'm too disabled, or some people have been told they're not disabled enough because they have an in invisible disability. Um, so it's like you know, like don't shy away from what disability looks like. Um, so, so yeah, it's, it's tricky, and also, um, I get I get told a lot. Oh, so we're going to book you for this job, but we don't want anything disability because you're not just all about disability. So we're going to book you for something that's non-disabled related. I'm there going, hang on a minute, we still need to learn as a society a lot about disability. So I would like to do a documentary on disabled uh, history and the use of language. You know, don't don't breeze over it. Don't. I mean, also I can then present something on shopping. You know, but don't think because I have a disability, you can't pitch something disability-led for fear of offending me. Because actually, you know, disability isn't a dirty word and, you know, don't sweep it under the carpet. You were just talking about ads then. So uh, IKEA Israel did one, I'm not sure if you saw that, called The, the Sables. Have I got that right? The Sables. So what did it, have you seen it? Yeah. yeah, it was brilliant. So they um it was they basically have um created IKEA products but made them um able so they can easily be used by people with a physical disability. And they created a hackathon in the IKEA store, um got uh, people with a physical disability in so and watched them how they use the products and then have basically created 3D printing so you can kind of print what you need to kind of attach to the IKEA product so that you're able to use it um, in your home. Yeah, it's quite um, quite incredible. Yeah, I picked that one. I forgot that. <laughs> <laughs> I think the interesting and slightly ironic thing to add is that as a, you know, being in the creative industries, uh, there seems to be a lack of creativity in understanding other perspectives and um, 
I think that's just something that needs to be it needs to be applied to everything and you know like um living with a disability means kind of having to hack every day isn't it and there's such a creativity in that and I think um yeah as an industry there could be a lot more creativity applied to um you know just becoming more inclusive yeah, on that, I wanted to talk about, you've all mentioned things like awkwardness and understanding and language. And I remember when we did uh, our first, had our first meeting here back in 2016. And I remember there being a, re we brought you and uh, Russian, Russian Lear in. So, so when I say you, nobody knows on the podcast, but Russian, Russian, Russian and Lear came in to talk about BAME or BAME. And, and, and there was a real awkwardness about what language to use. Can I say, people saying, can I say black? And it's the same with um, disability, right? I've learned that now. Um, but even disability as well. So I, it opens up the whole conversation. And LGBT as well. I mean, LGBT specifically. I mean, when we, we launched our first QVFX event, and the Q stands for queer, the first question was the word queer. And there was almost an awkwardness about, for me as a you know, straight middle class white dude, you know, even me using the term queer felt odd, but I owned it the best I could as an ally. But yeah, there's, is there a, how do we, how do we unawkward the awkward is my question. And that's to, uh, an open question to anyone. Because I think that for me, and again, I'm, I've not got lived experience, but we, we, it always comes back to being in a room of people who just don't know, they're, they're worried about saying the wrong thing all the time. Don't worry about saying the wrong thing. If you're having an open discussion, have the open discussion. So in, um, in the Uninvisibility Project, we actually don't use the words inclusion and diversity. Uh, we use representation and collaboration because we sort of feel as though inclusion is come and join us. And we, we quite often see that, you know, people have different coloured faces, but they want everybody's work to be the same. Um, so I think, you know, and, it, and again, it's like, you know, with a black, uh, you know, I work very closely with a black woman and I go, I know that I'm coming from a very white middle class viewpoint on this. Please tell me where I'm going wrong. Tell me where my language is wrong. You know, and I think the thing is, is that, you know, once you start doing that, you know, people recognise that you're, you know, you, that you're trying to make an effort that you're trying to understand. So, you know, I think listen and, and ask what you're doing wrong. Ask the questions because that's the only way that we're going to get rid of that awkwardness. Yeah, I totally agree as well. It's the thing is, it is none of us like change in a way. It's I think it's a human condition. It's change is difficult, and then getting feedback, especially when say if it's not been asked for, but if you said something wrong, and then getting that feedback, people can get quite defensive about it, which again is understandable. But I think if you just flip that on its head and come from a place of empathy, and understand that even if you've said the wrong thing, there's an opportunity to learn and come through that and then you know be be more inclusive of with your language then um we can like we can work together on it we can collaborate i love representation and collaboration um i think it is it is there is there is such a fear of saying the wrong thing that it is absolutely stopping the conversation from moving on and action from happening so i think we it would be really interesting and amazing to see people move from that space of defensiveness into a space of uh, empathy and wanting to just learn and and to be honest we at the other box so we do a load of training and development in the stuff and we we are really clear on saying that diversity and inclusion and bias training and culture change are about personal and professional development it's about looking within yourself and trying to work out how can I improve my own outlook on the world in order to be more inclusive yeah that's true do you think it comes down Arosh do you think it comes down then to attitudes and personal attitudes because just as you correctly said if you can speak to someone about the language or inappropriate language that they're using and they don't come across as offend, um, offend, as um, defensive, then, they, then you get the sense of, okay, this person actually wants to learn, this person actually wants to learn, actually wants to change, as opposed to, you know, butting up against someone who's like, well, this is the way I am, et cetera, et cetera. I'm just being my authentic self, you know, as people now are starting to use that as an excuse. So I think it's, I think it's about that, isn't it? The, the attitude and the willingness to learn and the willingness to develop. I just wanted to make a point as well. What I find really difficult with language is um, kind of having cohesion with a minority group. So I recently did a documentary, and I don't, we don't, well, 
we're not supposed to use the term able body anymore because I'm not disabled, it's my environment that disables me. So the preferred term is non-disabled, yeah? Um, but then when I was doing this group uh, workshop and we were all recording, so I, I was saying to all the whole crew, like, please don't use able-bodied, it's non-disabled. And then when I did this workshop with um, people with varied impairments, they all used able-bodied. And I'm sat there going, come on, guys, like, we need a little bit of um, cohesion because I've just told everyone that it's not a word that we use and I pulled everyone to one side and I said why are you still using able do you feel comfortable using able body and they went no we don't I said well why are you still using it so I think we need to kind of minority groups need to kind of come together and go what genuinely what offends us and what doesn't offend us because if we don't like a, a, a use of a, we don't like a word then we we need to not use it because people will only follow if we are all stand together. So I think that's really important. Mm. And um, I think it's about creating safe, um, open and honest cultures. So if we're all thinking about here, like the mill is a business, like what does that come from the top? Do you create this environment where you do feel comfortable, where you can say, um, say things how it is, you feel like you can call out inappropriate behavior or kind of say, if, you know, is that the correct term to be using? So it really does stem from the top and the culture. We ran um, we run anti-harassment training, and uh, only recently. And I remember they're, they're great sessions. I've run them, so they're amazing. And um, uh, one of our artists from the first one, he, uh, when we said, you know, I think I mentioned it in the one we did this week, and a few of the guys are here uh, this evening. Um, I said, uh, you know, what are you going to do differently? And one of the guys said, I'm never talking to anybody again. And it was like, no, that's not the point. It's kind of like we're trying to raise awareness. We're trying to create cultures where people can come forward. And we've had some real action as a result of the workshops. It's not just workshops. People have been going to HR and having conversations. So it's working. But my question to all of you, because you all work with industry, not just our lovely industry, but the wider advertising and creative industry, is who's doing it? diversity and inclusion or um, representation and equality well? Because I know for a fact, I mean, you'll know your bias workshop, the other box run. I mean, you, you've run it all over the world, figuratively speaking. <laughs> but um, who's, out, who, who's out there doing this stuff well? And Creative Equals do a lot of work, don't they? Do you want to lead this, uh, Steph? Yeah, I'm not sure who I can say who we who are doing it well, I guess. Fair we um, Well, no, maybe I can. So we're working with... Um, an agency called Ketchum PR, which is part of the Omnicom group. So they've um, they've gone through our quality standard, which is essentially um, a data tool for understanding um, the DNI makeup of your of your business. Um, and they've really um, they've really transformed themselves. So they've been. So I was talking about how diversity is led from the top. They have um, a Glaswegian um, CEO who comes from a working class background, and she really has want to kind of drive change through that business. She doesn't want it to be white and middle class. She really wants it to be um, representative. So they've been introducing um, a number of measures inside Ketchum to make sure that they're recruiting. Um, they're recruiting from different places. We recommend the other box for for that. Um, it, it's a it's a yeah. It's about being about being aware of where you're recruiting. Recruitment is such a challenge. So we run workshops on inclusive recruitment because it's not just your hiring managers that are responsible for recruitment, but all of you are. So if you share things on LinkedIn, if you share things on Instagram, it's about thinking about what well, what if those people aren't on those channels? Like how, where else do you go um, to find them? To catch them. Absolutely good. Catch them. That's one. One shout out. Any other shout outs? I don't know if this counts as creative. Maybe not. It's actually tech. But one of one company doing it well is Monzo. They're really transparent about the fact that they uh, are where they're starting from, and then which is not a necessarily great place because the tech industry as a whole, I think, is is not doing well in things like diversity and inclusion and representation, but they're really honest about it. They're transparent about it. And there's something very humbling in that and something that shows that they want to learn and be better. Um, and, you know, they, they're kind of unapologetic about it as well. And, and it enables them to move from that space of apology and defensiveness into the space of action. I guess companies need to be more, I, I, use, I bandy the term vulnerability around a lot, but it's not just about people, it's about companies and leaders and there's this real, you know, I mean, uh, alpha male leadership, for example, you know, is almost a barrier to actually just saying, you know what, we haven't got this right and just going help. And, and like I say, learn all these great words about learning and listening and empathy and, and understanding. Um, I want to build on that about, because it is, 
not unofficially, it's, it's International Women's Day on Sunday, but we're here to kind of celebrate International Women's Day as well. And I wanted to talk about um, some of the barriers to better support, or not barriers to support. How do we better support women getting into senior roles? And that's why I invited Jane along, because we met at the APA Good Karma event recently, and I was really impressed with your, um, we only had like, four minutes Katie where is she four minutes to talk um but you smashed it twice once in the meeting room before and once before, uh, afterwards and on the strength of that RMD was like man get Jane Evans in now stat um and I want to want to talk about how we one of the big sorry I'm making a real kind of uh, mess of this question but I want to talk about returnships returners it's one of the biggest challenges for our industry I know when and it um, uh, Film London do it and there's some great programs out there but how are we how do we better engage with people who have taken a career break and want to get back in particularly people who've been in industry because I know for a fact there's EPs and visual effects artists who are out there who have worked in industry they've had a break to have children or whatever who's gone travelling and they can't get back in well first of all creative equals are the champions of this um, and probably the only ones that are really doing a, a, a high level um, engagement on this I started the Uninvisibility Project with a tweet on January the 23rd last year where I asked, are there actually any women over the age of 50 creating ads in London? It was retweeted 64 times and I got eight names. Um, and it turned out only four of those were actually working full time. So that's, an, you, you know, that's the size of an industry that's like less than 1% of the industry is, is women over the age of 50. Um, which is absolutely ridiculous. Um, and one of the ways that I think is a really good way of bringing these women back in is, is through younger women. Because if you were, like, when, when you're, you, you're, you're looking for maternity leave, six months before, bring an older woman in back into the industry. Your industry doesn't change. It's like anybody that was in industry 20 years ago will still know as much about the industry. Now, they might need to learn some new acronyms. They might need to learn some more programs. But ultimately, they can still do the job. Bring them in six months before you go on your maternity leave. Make sure they're trained up. Then when you go on your maternity leave, you've got somebody that actually knows the job doing it. But also, when you come back, you've got somebody that's actually completed motherhood too. So imagine the support that you will get from this woman. And I would be suggesting that the younger women in this industry should be the ones that are actually championing the, to get older women back into the business because it will ultimately help you. And Creative Equals, I think a few years ago, um, came up with a figure that 88% of young creatives feel as though they don't have any women to look up to, that they don't have any role models. And that is really, really sad. I think uh, something that we talk about at The Other Box is intergenerationality as well and how there's so much to be learned in every direction from people of different generations. We ourselves are a company of, um, one of us is born in the 70s, one in the 80s, one in the 90s, and we learn so much, and we it just brings such different perspectives, rich perspectives. And I think the conversation, even just the conversation, it just takes on a completely different pitch when there's the three of us kind of just chatting and sharing and we then are able to kind of lean on each other's superpowers when it comes to being in front of clients and, and actually doing the work as well. And I think one of the things that we kind of work hard to do is um, be able to uh, push back on each other as well. So it's not just one direction, as in the, the older generation telling the younger what to do and back in my day and all of that stuff. It's, it's, it works both ways. And I think that's, that, would, that could really be a game changer if so. Um, the industry started thinking about it that way. It's um, it's sorry, Steph. Just we'll come to you. Is that or do you want to say go go go? Creative comeback. <laughs> Let me tell you about creative comeback. So that's a program that Creative Equals set up uh, last year, and it's designed to get those that have left the sector due to parenting, due to caring responsibilities, um, short or long term illness, and get them back into work. And it's predominantly for creatives. And what we find is if, if you've been out of the sector for a while, um, it's really hard to get back in because you haven't got up to date work. So you do have the skills and the talent. You just might not have TikTok on your um, portfolio. Um, so what we do is we, um, we look to uh, get a, a cohort of returners. Um, we train them up for a week with DNAD, so they learn um, soft skills about knowing your values and then hard skills, any kind of new uh, skills that they need in digital. We put them into a host agency the week after, so they get experience, they remind themselves of what it's like to be back in an agency. 
They then work on a couple of live briefs. So we work with Diageo. So they then get to kind of cut their, cut their teeth on like real life work, present back to Diageo, and then Diageo pick those winning ideas. They then get made in the Diageo agency with our returners, and our returners then go on a placement inside agencies. And the result of the London programme last year was 79% of those that were on the programme went back into work. So we either permanent uh, contract or, um, uh, I think, what's, what's not permanent? Part-time. <laughs> <laughs> but that's a great figure. And off the back of that, we're able to roll it out across New York and Mumbai this year. So, um, if, you know, if you're thinking about hiring, yeah, that, I think that's an applause. I think that's an applause. I obviously wasn't working at the company then, so I can't take credit for it. But um, if you're thinking about hiring here, it's about thinking, you know, people that have um, taken time out have had incredible life experiences and you really want different types of thinking in your business because that's the way you're going to solve problems in an interesting way. That's right. I mean, Jane, sorry, just to um, pick up on your point that you said before about um, senior leadership, obviously in terms of race, when it comes to um, senior leadership from people of colour, the, the number is very, very low. So, sorry, to direct this to Roshni and uh, Stephanie, what do you think um, can be done to ensure that there's more BAME leadership, uh, more BAME senior leadership? Because uh, one of the uh, complaints that we often get is that there aren't enough of, say, people like myself being an art director, senior art director or creative director, for incoming talent to look up yeah. to. There's actually 1% of uh, BAME talent uh, in senior leadership from our Creative Equals Research, which surveys the UK creative sector. Um, and that's not representative at all. Um, so yeah, I'll be asking companies to think about their recruitment processes, where they're sourcing their talent from. I've, I've referenced the other box in terms of that. I'll be thinking about sponsor programs. So if you've identified talent within your business, how can you kind of ensure that they're elevated up? I'd be thinking about mentor programs. Um, it's really about, yeah, we all want representative, we all want representative workplaces and we all want to see people that look like us. Um, I mean, I remember when I was um, kind of starting out in, in my career, I think there was one black person um, on the sales floor. And, and that does make you feel very uncomfortable. Um, if I'm honest, I think I saw black people um, in catering and in the post room. And that's quite, um, that's quite uncomfortable. Um, or cleaners so or cleaning. Or cleaning, right? And that, that's not the world that I know. So it's about, yeah, um, finding that talent elevating them and we actually have a training program called accelerate which is just for that but i won't do a sales plug <laughs> but we 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 realize that the training needs for um people of color versus white because we have that from our quality standard data are completely different they have very different needs and uh in order to it's about pitching it's about navigating politics it's uh, about presentation skills and once you've kind of once you've identified what you need you can really help them accelerate up that ladder faster. That's right, and understanding the culture as well. Yeah. Correct. I think you also touched on um, nuance, like to understand that it's not a one-size-fits-all solution, to um, expose yourself to more stories, different stories that are told from those perspectives that are needed, um, to then understand that whatever program, whether it's a mentorship or whatever you're doing as a company to support that person might not work for the next person. Um, so to, to just really like sit back and listen to what the needs are, um, to educate yourself as well from a leadership or an organisational point of view, and um, yeah, to not treat a person like a cookie-cutter solution. Uh, one of the things that they say about millennials is that you're all going to have multiple careers and lifelong learning. What I say is, is why don't we start now? If you're looking for, 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 for leadership um, in, for women and BAME, why not? Why aren't you training them? It was like, you know, why do you have to be 18 to 24 to be trained? Why can't you be trained at 50? Um, also, the other thing is, is that business is crying out for soft skills. It's like, you know, anybody can learn the hard skills. The soft skills are the really, really tough ones to get. Now, motherhood, as far as I'm concerned, is the Ivy League of soft skills training. So if we are looking at, at creating a new workforce of senior leadership, then if we start treating motherhood as a business skill, not as a career break, uh, there's a whole massive pool of talent that is out there that is just ready to be trained in, in the new techniques. Thanks, Jane. Um, 
I'm very aware this is a podcast, right? So we're getting well into panel mode. With the live podcast, if you want to get some audience engagement, this is your opportunity to be on a podcast episode if you've not done so already. Believe me, it's great. I love it. Um, but does anybody have a question? You have to get, get on the mic, though. I have to say your name as well. <laughs> okay. Hi, everyone. My name's Tokumba, and I am the founder of Tokumba's Kitchen, an award-winning Nigerian food startup and the London African Food Week. And I mean, it's really great to be here. And one of the things that I noticed when I came into this place and um, when I came into the um, building was I looked at the works, um, workforce and straight away did not recognize anybody that looked like me. And it's something that's come to mind more so often because recently I've been trying to get, um, go back into the workplace and I was looking for, um, I found a role that's uh, perfect for me in a startup. And again, went on the website, looked at the team, all white in London. And I'm like, I mean, I still applied, but I hesitated before I applied because I was like, number one, will I fit into this culture? And also how is it in 2020 in London that you have an all white team. It just seems so ridiculous to me. So I guess my thing is how, I mean, like I said, I would apply, I still apply for that job, but it's just that barrier that most people would look at our workforce and think, no, this is not the one for me because they've not made that effort to be diverse. It isn't a principle until it costs you something. Um, I had a client that I was potentially going to work with. I went on their website and there were 48 white, white people on there. And I just went, I'm sorry, I can't work for you. And I think that's what we really do genuinely have to start doing is, is we have to go, no, nah, sorry, you've got 48 white people on your board. I am not going to come and work with you. Anybody else have a question? Come on. Come on. Come on. <laughs> really? Yeah. Ah, yes. Come over, please. Come, come to the stage or the coffee table. Hello, I'm Rachel. Um, I do marketing for Escape Technology. And I just wanted to ask, so when you say you need different techniques to um, train people or recruit people from different backgrounds, what sort of things would that be? Great question. Who wants to take it? I think uh, if you're thinking about recruitment, it's certainly, and I know this is something that you talk about as well, Roshni, it's about um, unconscious bias. So it's about being, a, being aware of your um, of your biases and making sure that people in your teams are aware of those because awareness is the first step and then you can start really um you can really start unpicking and unpacking that whole recruitment journey and once you look at that you can start seeing where the biases creep in and then you can make sure that people across your teams are accountable for changing that can I add as well, I think you need to be, uh, you, you need to know where you stand on tokenism. Now, for me, tokenism has been a godsend and I applaud like tokenism um, because I would never have been able to get a foot in the door um, if I wasn't, you know, on a show because I was a token. Now, do I take offence of being a token? Not necessarily because I know what I'm doing and I will not be asked back if I wasn't good at what I was doing. But if it means that people who aren't represented um, get a foot in the door and then we can go, hey, do you know what? If you're stupid enough to use me as a token, I'm now going to use you to get, you know, to get where I need to be. So I think, you know, you need to understand. And I know people feel very, um, uh, have different strong opinions on tokenism. Some people say we should not be positively discriminating. But I think as a company, you need to, you need to if you agree with tokenism and you're like if, if, if um you know we that's the only way of getting people through our door that i have in a quota then stick with that and stay with that um and if you don't then you've got to be a bit more creative of how you involve uh, minority groups um, I, I mean i could be here for the rest of the night talking about this <laughs> but just one quick thing uh my little nugget to you is that um on a short list to have more than, I think tokenism, you're right, like quotas, they do have their place. But say on a shortlist, for example, to have more than, I think there is this really amazing stat out there that having more than one woman on a shortlist increases the chances of the woman getting hired. Um, and that's the same with most other minorities because there's a psychology thing behind it, which is when there's more than one woman on the shortlist, she's suddenly not only up against just one man, and that kind of, the performance bias is kind of equalized a little bit. So having a look at who's being shortlisted could make a difference. And having a look at who's doing the interviewing and if it's if it's more than one person, which generally it is these days, to make sure that panel is 
balanced in some way would make a difference too. That's my freebie for you on Friday night. <laughs> Completely free. She'll invoice you later. Um, I wanted to ask a quick question on um, uh, Steph. You mentioned, or we've all talked a bit about unconscious bias, unconscious bias training. And um, I know that the other box do a great session. I continue to run it here at the Mill, and they're great sessions, and people have great conversations, and they have these light bulb moments. And I find that there's still a lot of, uh, and I hate using this whole advocacy over action kind of point, but there's so there's still so much advocacy people come to the session they go right okay i've had this awakening and then they kind of get back into the team and then they just get back into fighting fires and getting back into i guess the unconscious bias dies a bit of a death and i guess i wanted to ask all of you because i'm very aware of kind of the the, the rules of podcast the preordained 45 minute rule i'm looking at tom just making sure we're okay on time is how do and also uh, the podcast kind of remit is, you know, we talk, uh, Acts of the Effect is about getting shits done, so I'll get the first swear word in. There you go, Jane. The, uh, the, the floodgates are open now. But I, I wanted to kind of get advice from all of you in terms of how can studios get more shit done and how can teams move beyond advocacy and to actually taking some action and creating some real change that we've been talking about tonight. This is the only International Women's Day event that I'm doing. Yes. Um, and the only reason I'm doing it is, is because Simon is such a great supporter of us. Um, I've been approached God knows how many times and nobody has offered to pay me. Now, I run a program about unemployed women and how women are not getting employed. So I'm being very hypocritical if I then go, oh, yes, no, I'll, I, I'll come and work for free. Um, so, you know, I, for me, it's like the time for talk is over. Everybody's been talking and talking and talking. It's like it really is time for action. Um, I would say get the data, measure what is success and get the metrics on that and start measuring it and that will really help accountability. Um, whether that is actually finding out, finding out what the demographics are in your company. A lot of companies don't actually do this and that's partly because people don't know how to uh, format those surveys and that's, you know, we work with companies on doing that because these questions need to be worded in a sensitive, inclusive way. Um, but uh, yeah, a lot of companies... Yeah, and of course, yeah, Creative Recalls are doing this as well. And, and, and it's qualitative and quantitative data. It's re it goes in really deep. And I think just getting that data is such a great way to start, but many people are kind of scared to do that to begin. Can you say more about that? <laughs> yeah. um, it's definitely about knowing your data. So we have a, a diversity kite mark accreditation, which um, gives businesses a scorecard as to kind of how diverse they are. And we share that with the agency intermediaries um, and we share that publicly so agencies are able to um, benchmark against each other. Um, but as, uh, also in terms of knowing your data, I referenced this earlier, it's about get the senior leadership team on board because it's one thing if you've got a kind of groundswell of support for um, diversity at the mid-level or the kind of um, the junior levels, but unless you've also got your CEO and your C-suite on board, then really they're not going to give you the budget which allows you to kind of um, push that forward. That also means that diversity inclusion isn't going to be woven into how you operate as a business. So you do need C-suite support. Um, a little bit of self-promotion, but I think how you can become more inclusive with regards to disability. I just wrote, I write for the Metro, and my one of my most recent columns was you're probably in, you're probably being ableist, and you don't even realise you are. And I think um, you know, go go all go away and read that because it's amazing how um, we are so ingrained with discriminative thoughts towards disabled people, and you know we might not think we're being ableist and you it might be very innocent but your ableist actions impact on people like myself in such a huge manner um, that stops us from being fully inclusive so a bit of homework for you all um, go and read that because I think it, it's, it's quite enlightening. Um, so the last final question and then we'll do another round of um, loads of questions from the audience I'm sure and then I'll do all the call to action and the, the, the cheesy podcast outro for you all as well um, but I want to talk about resources available to people looking to further their careers in the creative industry yeah, I can talk to the high heavens about the Access VFX website accessvfx.org get yourself an e-mentor if you haven't already or those of you in here who work in industry sign up to be a mentor because we need more mentors don't we Tom? 
Yes, I always see that. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> don't be told me Europe, um, but we do. Um, so I wanted to kind of again pass the mic to, to all of you, and then I included actually as co-chair is, yeah, sorry, we didn't plan that, did we? What's out there? How can people, I mean, we've talked a lot about studios and C-suite and what uh, studios and companies can do, but what can our audience is also people trying to break into industry. What can they be doing more, particularly if they're like me, white middle class and have it very easy, allegedly? Well, uh, as I mentioned at the start of this podcast, uh, I run co-run uh, We Are Stripes, which is particularly for the BAME community. And uh, just as Stephanie, to your point, when it comes to working with uh, various uh, communities, the way they communicate, the way they communicate with each other, um, and uh, the world at large as well, can be very different from community to community. So with We Are Stripes, we work on the network and educating companies on how to speak to BAME talent. Once they get into the, um, the organisation, we speak to them about retention, because retention is a whole different thing. It really is. And a lot of um, uh, creatives have come up against really stringent cultures that they haven't been able to, to thrive in. So that's one of the things that uh, we do at We Are Stripes. We do um, playbooks and consultancies for these companies to help them make an inclusive culture, specifically and specifically for BAME talent. Um, for us, come and join the Uninvisibility Project. You can go onto our website at uninvisibility.com. We're on Twitter, we're on LinkedIn. Um, and it's really interesting that the majority of our following is actually younger women. Um, and I think that's I think that's really encouraging that you you know sort of that you're seeing that it's it's your future that we're we're showing. Um, but also, we run a network of the most incredible elite female creatives around the world. Um, so, you know, it's like if you have a job that you need to do, I mean, I have, I've, I've heard of a number of um, young women that are working on menopause briefs at the moment, which to me is absolutely freaking ridiculous. That's like getting a toddler to advertise tampons. Um, you know, it was like, we are here with a group of women that have been through the other side of it. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of paradoxes to menopause. And um, seriously, hire us, please. If you get a brief that is for women over 45 who buy 47% of everything, then please let some of us actually do the ads. Uh, one of the tips we always give is to diversify your own media consumption. And I think that's something that everyone can do, whatever your format, whether you like Netflix, whether you like podcasts, whether you like books, whether you like to watch the news, find a source that is giving an alternative perspective and um, is told by that alternative perspective, I think really allows you to, to understand the nuance. Um, and I, I do think like that information is at our fingertips now today in the digital world. And um, cheeky plug, if you do follow at underscore the other box, on Instagram and Twitter, and actually on LinkedIn, we're pretty hot on LinkedIn if that's your vibe. And yeah, we have a we have a Facebook community that's a um, yeah, it's a, uh, three thousand creatives who identify as other. And the Facebook group is closed, but you can just answer some questions and get into it. It's a place for everybody, but we do prioritize the voices of marginalized communities, and that is a space where you can share resources, learn about other people's experiences, um, just share a story if you like gosh that thing this thing happened to me at work it was a microaggression am i imagining this the community normally comes through to be like you're not ima imagining it that was a microaggression that's out of order and to have that sense of community and solidarity can be so empowering um so yeah whatever your format you'll probably find us there so um hit us up <laughs> I would direct people to, um, I was the president last year for a women's network called Bloom, which is in the media and marketing industry. Um, and that's a community, a network of 170 women, um, mid, mid to senior level. Um, and we're really providing a, a platform and a voice for, um, for those um, stories that we've experienced, real kind of honest um, and open conversations about the experiences that women go through. So I would uh, definitely hit them up. Um, I would also hit Creative Equals up. So we have an, uh, a number of programs for untapped talent. So I mentioned Accelerate, which has been created specially for black, Asian and minority ethnic um, people. Um, we also have a conference called Rise, which is for females uh, in the sector. Um, and we have a program called Diverse Minds, which is for the neurodiverse community.
And I spoke at Rise last year, didn't I? So there you go. Um, it always drives me insane when people say, oh, I don't know how to approach disabled people, don't know where they are, what, what they're doing, you know, so we just didn't bother. Um, that's laziness. Um, social media is a godsend to many within the community for obvious reasons, you know. Um, so... You know, use some common sense, go on Google the top 10 disability hashtags, and once you've typed them into Twitter, Instagram, you will find a plethora of amazing disabled influencers, and then you have a look at who they're following, and from there on, you will have thousands and thousands of amazing, untapped, talented, disabled creatives at your fingertips. Um, and also, if you do approach them, as you went, said before, um, disabled people do not work for free. The amount of times that people want me to do things for free because I'm disabled. I've even been asked to do something and went, what, what? What, does, what charity does Samantha want her money donated to? Um, even though everyone else on the panel got paid cash, my agent obviously turned around and went, um, hell to the no. But um, So there will be my two tips. Um, common sense, people, yes. I concur with that, that all of our panel guests and co-chairs are getting paid some financial support. <laughs> there are, we haven't spoken about it, a few of you have, a few of you haven't, but there is a fee, you'll command a fee, we're not, we're not doing this just for the love. Um, Stephanie, are we going to jump in there? Look, you were going to drop some more knowledge bombs. Okay, <laughs> the pay, the money. Um, right, anybody have another, a few, any more questions? We've got a few more minutes, Noreen. Um, firstly, I'd like to say thank you to all the panellists because it's only people like you taking the time out to do it that we actually do move forward. So thank you. It's been really, really enlightening. Um, la last year, we had International Women's Day Breakfast, which was great. From that, we formed a focus group at the mill. Sorry, I'm Noreen Connolly, part of, I'm MD of being part of the mill. Um, so we formed a focus group. We got all the C-suite management to attend because that's so, so important especially if you're dangling things like the McKinsey report and how diversity is great for the EBITDA, which is very important. Um, and to your comment when you walked into the mill, you know, it's we're, we're making progress, but it's so slow for women in senior management, people of colour. Um, sometimes I'm the only, only person in the room, the only woman. It's like, so my frustration and question is, even though we're holding events like this, how do we accelerate it? How do Because things are happening and it's great we're doing this and things are moving in the right directions slowly, slowly. But I will be well retired the time there's kind of any significance. So how do we think we can make it move a little bit quicker? I mean, very, very briefly, um, we've got kind of mantra in the com disability community, nothing for us without us. So even if you can't all of a sudden miraculously come up with a job title and then have someone with a disability from BAME or, or whatever, um, you know, think outside of the box and think, are we, do we need some inclusion training on disability? Then you can contact, you know, charities like Scope and they will come and have, a, you know, as a freelance disabled consultant come in so even though it's not a permanent position at least you are starting just to you know kind of engage with other minority groups so you know you don't have to miraculously go and, and create a new uh, uh, you know job title but kind of think outside the box and go okay maybe we can get someone to come in and do consultancy two days you know in a month and I think by that way you're you're just le you're learning and you're creating a, a job for somebody it's about the power of allies so white male um, white males are in power they hold the they're the way that you can kind of progress this so it's about kind of getting them on board so that they're able to um, understand the benefits of it we need we need we need people like you on board yeah, yeah. And that, that's how change that, and that's how change will happen yeah. we have a um, we have a mantra at the other box that is past the mic which is quite appropriate today, seeing as we're passing the mic to each other. But it is if you have a if you have a platform and a position of um, power, decision making power, whatever it is, um, and you do kind of kind of conform to that kind of the step the the archetype, then just look around you and think who else can I uh, bring up with me in this moment? And obviously not just to put them in that position and expect them to be able to run with it, but coach them into it a little bit as well. Um, I think in case of older women, I think first of all, you put a stop to it right now. So we stop we stop the, the presumption that the next round of redundancies you're going to get rid of any woman over the age of 45. 
Um, I think also, you know, you you stop the presumption that 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 they that that you, that you stop training them, that you stop investing in them. So I think that's the very very first thing. Um, but for the generation that is lost to it, which is the first generation in the workforce, it was like, you know, I don't I don't think many of you realise that the day that Bohemian Rhapsody first hit number one on the charts was the day that we got equal opportunity legislation. So we've lost one generation. Employ those, find those women. We, we, the Uninvisibility Project has them. Don't let the women that fought for so much and put up with so much for you guys to face poverty at the end of their careers. So please make an active effort to go on employers, but also stop this ageism now. Again, drop, drop that mic. Yes, Jane, yeah. <laughs> okay. Do we have any more questions? I think we can take, Tom, how many can we take? One or two? One. Okay, one more question. Hello. Um, I am not a woman, but I <laughs> am from the LGBTQ um, community, and I've always felt, found it quite difficult um, sort of assimilating into straight culture. It's always been a really difficult thing for me. Um, there's definitely a sort of male bravado at work, which I don't fit into do you have any advice on sort of how to overcome that for maybe <coughs> younger lgbtq people who are looking to make a way in in sort of like this uh, working world but maybe feel very intimidated by doing so great question solomon thank you stephanie yeah, that's a hard one. Um, it's about, I think it's about, if you're thinking about um, how do you build relationships with your male colleagues that are quite different to you, it's about how do you find um, commonalities that, um, that that you do have in common that um, do make you feel um, more comfortable? Because you will have shared, you'll have shared values, you'll have, you might not have kind of, you, you might not go out to the same places or have the same uh, types of relationships, but it's about finding finding that common ground and having the confidence in yourself that um, although that might be the dominant uh, culture in, in your workplace, that you still have value and, and worth and, and your opinion counts. Um, I th with the other box community, what we have found is that people tend to find their communities outside of work. But having that community outside of work is sometimes what enables you to feel that sense of confidence and confidence in your own identity when you are within the workplace as um, a minority or minoritized person. So yeah, having that, that strong sense of community outside of work can make a really big difference. But I do think organizations also do have a responsibility to create those cultures of openness and to avoid those horrible like cliches of like um, beers on a Friday night and everyone going out on the lash and stuff like that, which is, you know, it, it is a thing that is associated with the, the industry. But to just be creative about it, again, like the irony of the creative industries is it's not that creative when it comes to this stuff. <laughs> so to just start thinking differently about it. Thanks, Josh. Is that our last question, do you think, from the audience, officially? Thank you, Solomon, for that. That was great. Um, I want to get some shameless plugs in, and I want to thank everybody. So we'll do the big hurrah at the end. Um, the first thing is uh, mentoring. I always go on about the XVFX mentoring program. We have mentors all over the world, all over our chapters in New York, Chicago, Montreal, and all across the UK and beyond. Anybody over 13 can get a mentor from that community. We need more mentors, and that you don't have to be working in creative industry. You can be a producer. Producers are creative. I, I'm looking at them now. Um, but you know, accountants, doesn't matter. We all know people who can get people up, up that ladder, up that ladder, that's a thing. Um, it's, uh, if you're listening, or even in this room, it's accessvfx.org forward slash mentors. Sign up, it takes 15 minutes. And if you come from a different intersection of societies we've discussed today, you can click that button because people sometimes want to have somebody black or somebody um, LGBTQI um, mentoring them to get that perspective. So please fill it out with some um, authenticity in terms of how you want to mentor people. It, um, obviously, if you want to be a mentee, sign up as well. We have hundreds of people signing up daily and every event we push it and every podcast we push it. In terms of opportunity, 
if you want to be an apprentice working across any studio, we hide them here at the mill as well. We're, um, uh, we, we do it through Next Gen Skills Academy. It's nextgenskillsacademy.com. Phil Atford will thank me for this plug. Um, and click on apprenticeships. And we're advertising for visual effects apprenticeships now. And we always push for diversity for this program. Last year, our current cohort, I think it was, correct me if I'm wrong, Tom, it was our first um, 50, 40% female cohort. And in terms of BAME, it was, I mean, the mill cohort alone is 75% BAME. So we're starting to attract more diversity because we tag access VFX on the end of it. And that's what NextGen uh, stand for as well. It's live until the 26th of April. So there's a big lead time. It's a SurveyMonkey application. And to Jane's point around soft skills, that's what we hire on. We teach the tech. And they're all amazing. Any apprentices in the room? Oh, I'm not training them well enough. Um, so that's all the plugs. I want to thank everybody on the panel. I, I knew this would be a rich conversation. I want to thank, can you give Nene a big round of applause? First co-chair, we'll have you back. And I have a feeling that we'll have another, I, I'd love to follow up on all of these conversations, almost have a special with all of you. So big, big up Jane Evans. Big up Roshni Giate. Big up Stephanie Matthews. And big up Samantha Renk. And uh, big up yourselves. Sorry, very Ali G of me, but um, thank you for coming. Great crowd, and we've got to kind of get the, the live podcast vibe. I'm terrible at finishing these usually, but I think we did it, right? I won't actually drop the mic because these are expensive. Um, but I want to thank everybody. Uh, please tune in to the podcast. It drops on Friday, so you can listen to it all over again. Thank you for tuning in on the live feed on Mill London. And thank you to the Mill for hosting, of course. Thank you, Mill. Great space. Nice sunny day. Thank you. There we go. End of another Access VFX podcast. We really hope you enjoyed it. To find out more about what we discussed, our mentoring program and events we're at, then head over to our website at www.accessvfx.org and follow us on social media. Big thank you for listening and until next time, bye.